Philip is uh, going to come uh, and read to us now as we start uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, if you've got one of these in front of you, uh, it's on page uh, 267. Uh, if you haven't, when you've got it on your phone or something like that, uh, well, you'll be able to find it there. But uh, Philip. Book of Ruth, um, page 267, if you haven't got it there. Uh, after Book of Judges, <clears throat> if you're looking at your own Bible or anyone. Headed in, in uh, uh, our Bibles, uh, the first section is headed, Naomi loses her husband and sons. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Noam's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley half 
harvest was beginning. As we begin this series in Ruth, shall we just have a moment to pray together? Father, we thank you for this beautiful story of Ruth. We pray it might not just be moved by its beauty, but Father, as over these next three weeks we read your word together, will you speak to us and show us your goodness? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a bit at the beginning of the New Testament that we don't tend to read at Christmas, even though it's the introduction to everything that the Bible has to tell us about Jesus. Uh, It's Matthew chapter 1. It's on page 965 of the Pew Bibles, I think. And it's a very strange genealogy. So I guess most of us probably have some idea what a genealogy uh, is, uh, particularly as people in uh, our culture, and perhaps many of us, have become much more interested in, in where we come from, in our heritage. Uh, there are plenty of websites that will offer you uh, the way to sort of search old parish records and, uh, and various other things to find out who your great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was uh, and um, discover that really you're royalty after all. Um, My kids are slightly obsessed with doing that. Um, uh, And they're really quite obsessed with my great aunt, whose name was Sibylla Gloriana Thickness. (laughs) Well, you would be, wouldn't you? Uh, She was an author in the middle of the 20th century, uh, wrote a a biography of the village Abbots Langley, uh, wrote a book called The Old Curiosity Shop, but uh, not with a P and an E on the end. It's Uh, a play on Dickens, and it's about weird things they do in church. Uh, And she also wrote the government's plan for the resettlement of displaced people after the Second World War. But we're interested in all that kind of information. It tells us something about ourselves. And when Matthew sits down to write his story of Jesus, how does he begin? Not by telling us about Jesus, not directly, but by telling us about his ancestry. Here's the first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins with Abraham. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. These sorts of lists of forebears are very common in the Bible, And they're very common in ancient literature. People are interested not only in who you are, but in who your father was and in who his father was and so and so on. That establishes your identity and your significance in the world. But Matthew's genealogy is really unusual. And I mean really unusual. Because five times, he doesn't just tell you about the father but about the mother. Now, that might not seem strange to us, but in that context, really unusual. And what's unusual about these mothers is that two of them were widows when they became mothers, and two of them were foreigners, not part of Israel. And Ruth is one of those foreign mothers of the Messiah. And Joseph's genealogy, rather Jacob's, uh, rather Matthew's genealogy, ends 
very strangely indeed by the standards of the day, like this, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So actually the whole genealogy up to that point has been a genealogy that takes you to Joseph, and Joseph's only significance is that he's married to the mother of Jesus. It culminates this genealogy with the mother. Now, if you know your Bible really well, that may be less surprising to you than it would have been to Matthew's original readers. Because in Genesis chapter 3, just after everything has gone absolutely fallen apart in terms of humanity, Adam and his wife Eve have taken the fruit that God said, if you eat that, you'll die. You'll bring chaos and destruction into the world. You will ruin everything. And they've taken that fruit and they've eaten it. And death and cursing has come into the world. And the first ray of hope after that terrible dark moment is this in what God says to the serpent who led Adam and Eve astray. This is Genesis chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's story of redemption was always one that was going to culminate somehow in the story of the woman and her offspring. So Jesus, born of a virgin with no human father, is a son only of the woman. And as he dies, as the serpent strikes his heel, he once and for all crushes the serpent's head. He brings about the end of Satan's dominion over humanity. He brings about the end of death's final curse over the human race. He begins to change everything and make every sad thing untrue. And you see, the story of Ruth is a pivotal moment in that story. It is a story of mothers. It's a story of loss and of grief. It's a very ordinary story in the midst of some really quite extraordinary stories. Now, if you know the book of Ruth, you might think, come on, Nick, that's not at all ordinary. And, and yet it is ordinary in the sense that it, on either side are books which are about the sort of affairs of nations, books filled with extraordinary miracles. And yet the book of Ruth is the story of, well, two women, really. And it's a story in which God is only twice mentioned as doing things, and they don't seem particularly miraculous. The first is in the reading we've just heard, chapter 1, verse 6, where the Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. In other words, God's made it rain in Israel after a famine. And the only other thing we're explicitly told that God did is that he enables Ruth to conceive. Both ordinary things. There are no miracles in the book. There are no prophecies. There are no oracles from God. God does not speak audibly. It's the story of an ordinary family experiencing ordinary things. And yet it is extraordinary. And it points the way to Jesus. 
So should we dig into it together? Chapter 1, verse 1, sets the scene. In the days when the judges ruled. It's easy to skip over it, but if you know the book of Judges, you know that that is ominous. The judges ruling over Israel. Uh, Israel uh, has been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, through their wanderings in the wilderness, uh, and now into the promised land, but all is not well. God has been faithful to them, but they are faithless, and constantly they turn and do evil. And in response, God does what he promised he would do if his people turn away from him and turn to evil. Uh, He brings curses. He brings Uh, devastation on the land in various ways, often through uh, the oppression of foreign powers. And actually there's a cycle in Judges where that happens and then the people cry out to him for mercy and God redeems them. He sends a judge to rule, uh, but then when that judge dies, the people go back to their old ways. They turn away from God, disaster comes on them until eventually they cry out again for mercy. It's chaotic and brutal. And the story of the book of Judges ends on the previous page from the book of Ruth. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And if you have a strong stomach, you can go and read the book of Judges and you can see what it looks like for everyone to do as they see fit. It is not a pretty sight. And against that background of chaos and disorder, We hear there's a famine in the land. This land flowing with milk and honey is barren. And no one has anything to eat. Which again in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28 is what God says will happen when his people turn away from him. When they're living in the land that he will send famine. And here is one of those famines. The people have wandered from God. All is not well. And then... Almost in a sort of, it's almost humorous, and perhaps it's deliberately humorous. We're introduced to a man. And where is that man in the middle of this famine from? He's from Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. Uh, And so, first of all, we're introduced to him as just another man who, together with his wife and two sons, goes to live in the country of Moab. Moab, that country, perhaps the most hostile country to the people of Israel. Their attempts to destroy Israel are recorded in three chapters of the book of Numbers. uh, And their successful seduction of Israel into the worship of their gods instead of Israel's gods is recorded in Numbers 25. King Eglon one of those oppressive kings I've mentioned in the book of Judges is the king of Moab. And so in the midst of this scorched earth, as we see this man from Bethlehem departing for Moab, the sound of the music in the background is ominous indeed. And then there's another irony beginning of verse 2. What do we know about the time of the judges? Well, if we've just read the last sentence of the previous book, we know that in those days Israel had no king. The man's name was Elimelech, which means God is my king, or my God is king. 
And he, with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And they went and they lived there. And so as you begin to read this book, you're thinking, is, is, is this man, Elimelech, somehow going to be the hope of Israel? Israel has no king. Elimelech escapes from the famine. God is my king. This is surely going to be the story of Elimelech. And so then in verse 3, it's like one of those films that begins with a big star who you think is going to be the, the, the sort of central figure of the movie. And then verse 3, he's killed off. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Immediately, he's no longer the center of the story. He is now known only as Naomi's husband. And he dies. So Naomi is, they have left Israel, and now Naomi is left with her two sons, who then marry Moabite women. Well, given Israel's history with Moabite women and the way they've led them to the worship of Chemosh, the Moabite god, away from God, the music just gets darker at this point. They marry Orpah and Ruth. They're all she's got left. And we're worried that Orpah and Ruth might lead them away from God. And the way the story is told, we don't need to go into the detail of it, but Marlon and Kilion are... Uh, pretty dark figures. And it looks like they may well have uh, seized Orpah and Ruth to be their wives, and they're certainly not uh, heroes in this story, and after about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilion also die. And so the, the sort of bitterly ironic tone of the narrator goes on. Uh, verse 3, Naomi was left with her two sons, Verse 5, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And in one sense, it's very hard for us to understand just how devastated Naomi is at this point. Her life is over as far as she can see. She's got no one. It's not just the grief of loss, though that grief is bad enough. I've sat and talked with enough widows that I know just how deep that grief is. I've stood at the grave of bereaved mothers, with bereaved mothers, including my own. And I know that that's a pain that is unfathomable. But Naomi hasn't just lost those key relationships. She's lost her identity. Hard for us to understand that. Our culture is so different. But for a woman in ancient Israel, your identity was bound up in your family, in your parents, your husband, and your children in those three generations. Now, uh, from what Naomi says later on, we know that her parents are already dead. And now her husband is dead and her sons are dead. She has no past, no present, no future. She's no social standing anymore. She has nothing. No home, no land, no one to provide for her. 
Now, I say it's a, a, a different culture, and yet, you know, maybe we're not so different. Victoria Smith has just in the last couple of weeks published a book called Hags, the Demonization of Middle-Aged Women, which uh, talks about how as a, a culture we don't know how to cope with uh, women once they pass the age of childbearing. She describes the precipitous and irreversible loss of status that comes with being middle-aged. She says they're seen not only as past their expiry dates, but also annoying, useless, entitled, and embarrassing. Oh, and ugly. Of all forms of bigotry, ageism must be the dumbest, she says, because none of us can avoid getting old. Perhaps we're not so different as a culture, although we congratulate ourselves on being different. But Naomi faces all of that. She feels unloved and unlovable and lost and that even God has turned against her. And I think it's just important to note that the Bible deals realistically with these sorts of things. With some of the darkest fears and griefs that we find hard to give voice to. Hard to acknowledge openly. And hard to talk about. What the book of Ruth refuses to do is to say, paint on a sunny smile, walk on the sunny side of the street, pretend that all is well. The advice that Christians used to be given to say, I'm H-A-P-P-Y, I'm H-A-P-P-Y, I know I am, I'm sure I am, I'm H-A-P-P-Y, is nonsense. God doesn't deal with us like that. He knows our griefs. He recognizes the depth of them. And he meets us there. And the book of Ruth meets us there. So Naomi then hears, verse 6, that God has come to the aid of his people. And so she decides, there's nothing left for me here in Moab. I'm going to go home. Though she has no home, she has no land, there is nothing for her there. At least she can die in Israel. So she decides to go back, and the daughters-in-law, not knowing what else to do, come with her. And so they leave and set out, just as they'd left and set out from Bethlehem that time, all that time ago. And then we get three speeches from Naomi to her daughters-in-law, trying to persuade them not to follow her. A bit like Annie with that dog following her. And she says, dumb dog, why are you following me? It's a bit like that. She says, look, I've got nothing for you. Don't have a crumb, dog. First of all, in verse 8, she says to the two of them, go back to your mother's home. You've got a family to go to. You're still somebody's. Go back to your mother's home, and then may God bless you and give you rest in the home of another husband. And you can see the grief, even in the way she says it. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. So she kisses them goodbye, and, and they weep. But they refuse to leave, and they say, we'll go back with you. And so she tries again, verse 11. She says, look, let me lay it out for you. Let me explain to you just how bad it is. Why come with me? 
Am I going to have any more sons? Can I actually give you what you need to give you status and significance? Go home. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I did, even if by some miracle I could have a child, a son for you, are you really going to wait until he grows up? You'd remain unmarried for them? No. These fictional children, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Go back, she says. And this time she is sufficiently persuasive that Orpah actually kisses her goodbye. But Ruth remains clinging to her. So Naomi has one more go. Look, says Naomi to Ruth, your sister-in-law, this is verse 15, is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. Go back, go back, go back, go back, go back. And I want you to see what an impressive character Naomi is in this. She's lost everything. She is full of grief. And there are these two women who are all she has left in the world. And she begs them to leave her. Why? Because she doesn't need them? Because she doesn't want their support? Hardly. She is alone in the world. She believes even God has turned against her. It is because she loves them. I've got no future to offer you, she says. And you don't want to be immigrants into Israel as Moabites. They hate you. You're not going to find a husband there. And I'm not going to give you a husband. Her prayer for them is that God will give them husbands. And rest. She loves them. And her love is not the kind of love that we often think of, which is the love that desires something for the self, that needs something in the other. This is love that mirrors the covenant, generous love of God. She actually talks about there, chesed. That's the, 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 the word that the Bible uses for, for God's unfailing covenant love. And it is other person-centered and self-giving. And Naomi is other person-centered and self-giving. And she says to them, for your sakes, leave me. That is real love in action. And Ruth's reply in verse 16 mirrors back to her exactly that same kind of love, that covenant love that does not abandon the other person when they've got nothing to give you. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. It's one of the most beautiful things I think a human being has ever said. I'm not going to leave you. And Ruth becomes a very unusual kind of immigrant. In general, people leave one nation for another to get a better life. Because there are better prospects. Naomi says, don't come with me because it will ruin your life. 
But Ruth chooses to go against the normal flow of immigration. She chooses to go from hope to hopelessness, from a better life to a worse one, because of her commitment to Naomi. It's such a beautiful friendship that these two women have. And there's a vision here, isn't there, for friendship. For commitment and other person's self, other person-centered, self-giving love that our world so desperately needs. My friend Phil ended up on um, BBC One last Saturday morning. He's written a, a Christian book on friendship. And he was invited on sort of primetime Saturday morning TV to talk about it. And he said to me, I, I, it feels so unusual to have a, an evangelical Christian book that's unashamedly a Christian book that's about Jesus talked about on BBC One. But he said, the BBC are just so desperate for anything because they recognize that the need for friendship in our culture at the moment and the pain of loneliness is so severe that they'll take whatever they can get. (laughs) So there he is on BBC One talking about friendship and talking about Jesus. I don't think as a culture we value friendship nearly high enough. But what a beautiful, beautiful picture it is of love. And make no mistake, this is a beautiful picture of the love of God for his people. And it's made clear in the use of language here that that is in view. And Ruth, the Moabites, takes the covenant name of God on her lips as she says this to Naomi. Both of them in this passage show us the love of Jesus Christ who left his home, who came to live as an alien and a stranger in a world that did not want him or love him out of love for his people, who gave up all his comfort and his status for the sake of those he loved. He's like Naomi, he's like Ruth. Their love speaks of his love to the point at which even he says, death will not separate us. And he joins the deathless one, joins his people in death so that he can free them from death. It's a beautiful picture of the love of God. It's a beautiful picture of friendship. And the story goes on. They come to Bethlehem. And the whole town is stirred because of them. Here's two women traveling alone, one older, one younger, one Jewish, one a Moabites. And the years have gone by. They wonder that Naomi has returned. And in another of these little twists of irony where there's almost a joke, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi because Naomi means sweetness. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. What an ironic thing to say for someone who fled a famine in the house of bread. 
I went away full. No, you didn't. You went away starving. And yet, compared to the situation she's in now, her life was so much better when she left Israel on the, on the brink of starvation. I've come back empty. The Lord brought me back. The Lord Almighty has afflicted me, she says, full of bitterness. And she's full of insight, Naomi, isn't she? She really understands her own situation. There is no reasonable hope for her. She's lost everything. And she can't see any way back. And she is sure that God has turned against her and that it's his work. Her husband's name was Elimelech. My God is the king. Well, she recognizes recognizes God's kingship and she assumes therefore that the circumstances of her life reflect his attitude to her and how many of us who've been in the depths of grief and hopelessness have not felt that so verse 22 is extraordinary because it is the turning point of the book Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You hear that note of hope, the barley harvest is beginning in the house of bread. And Naomi is not alone. She has with her Ruth. And what a gem she has in Ruth. And what extraordinary blessing God is going to bring to her through Ruth. But in that moment and in that bitterness and in that grief, she cannot see it, but it's no less true. My friends, if you're suffering, if you cannot imagine, not only if you can't see hope, but you can't imagine that there could be hope, and you do all the maths and you work out all the circumstances of your life and you think there is no way God can help me now, There are things in your life, even now, that you cannot see that God can do extraordinary things with. And maybe like Naomi, you have a Ruth in your life. You, there, is, there are riches that you can't imagine or understand, but that are there. I think if Ruth chapter one teaches us anything, it says, it's that God is the hope of the hopeless. And that God isn't finished with you. He's certainly not finished with Naomi. Now all of this points us forward to Jesus in all kinds of ways. We've seen the love of Ruth and Naomi. There's just one other thing I want to highlight to you before we finish, and that is this. That in calling herself Mara... Naomi takes on her lips the name of the last woman in that genealogy, Mary, who is told by the angel of this extraordinary thing that is going to happen to her. She is going to carry God's own son. And then the angel says, but a sword will pierce your heart too. Mara is the root of the name Mary. It means bitterness. And Mary the last of the women in that genealogy stands already a widow at the cross of her son and watches him die. 
And yet in that moment of her deepest grief comes her salvation and the salvation of the world. God is at work right in the darkest heart of the hardest things we will ever face to bring about a joy that we cannot imagine. So, don't give up. He is the hope of the hopeless. Take a moment to be quiet and I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you that your love for us is like this. That it is other person-centered and self-giving that you gave your only son because of your love. We pray that you will give us faith to trust you in the dark and in grief and in hopelessness. Where we face those things, teach us to know that you are our hope and that all is not lost. Even when our eyes tell us that you have abandoned us, that you have turned against us, we know that is not true because you did not withhold from us your only son who refused to be separated from us even in death so that we might live to you and with you and for you forever. Teach us the truth of that, we pray, even in the depth of our sorrows. In Jesus' name.